Where did you like to play as a child? I ask this question a lot because childhood memories shape us into the people we become. Welcome to Play It Forward, a worthy podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Ritson. Thanks so much for joining me. I talk a lot about play. I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm an educator, and I'm a playground designer. So I want to gather some of my favorite people who are advocates of children and nature and create a space to have an honest conversation about getting more kids outside. The power of play is very often underestimated and I think we all need a little more play in our lives. Welcome to another Play It Forward Worthy podcast. I have once again a very, very special guest to share with you today. Um, I've been watching this person's journey for a while now. It's been inspirational and so insightful. Um, the vulnerability is amazing and aspirational. And I'm talking about the amazing Alison Davies. Um, Alison Davies, mum, wife, educator, advocate, speaker, neurologic music therapist, and creator of, creator of Brain Equals Behaviour. Since 2005, she's run a private music therapy practice in both clinical and community settings in the area of early childhood intervention, special educational needs, autism spectrum disorder, juvenile detention, youth engagement, mental health, aged care, palliative care, dementia care, perinatal care, and speech rehabilitation. Coming to us via the phone all the way from Tasmania. Thank you so much for joining us, Alison. Oh, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, what I love about your journey is, like I mentioned in that intro, your vulnerability on your journey. Um, we're going to talk about that today, how you found your, where you are now. And um, I just think there's so much amazing content that educators and parents, little strategies that you use that they can simply apply to support their children in their growth and their well-being. Yeah. And I also feel once we start talking about my neurotype and neurodivergence, um, there is just so much that everyone can learn from hearing somebody's lived experience. 100%. Um, you practice yeah. and you live with what you're talking about. So the two sides yeah. of the view there. Yeah, exactly. Um, as yeah. we start with all our guests, where did you play as a child, Alison? Oh, okay. I love this question because it's exactly the same place I play now, on the beach. Nice. So I was a collector of shells and um, as a child, I collected <laughs> supermarket bags full of shells. When my parents actually moved house when I was um, all grown up, they found the whole downstairs of their garage all filled with bags of shells. And I still collect shells. It's just the most relaxing mindful place i could be i do the same i don't yeah. not, not to that scale but um because i surf i always like spot a random shell that i'll put in my pocket and take home <laughs> as a little yeah, trophy I, of the experience yes i do have to be a bit more um mindful now um firstly i don't want to take all the shells i know um small shells especially are becoming fewer and further between but um I just don't, now that I'm a mum, I just don't want my own house filled with bags of stuff. So I'll find one special one and that'll be my um, treat. Management, self-regulation at its That's best. It. <laughs> yeah. um, for our listeners that aren't familiar, neurological music therapy, can you give that a breakdown for us? Yeah. So 
I've been a music ther- a registered music therapist in Australia for about 15 years now. Music is um, the use of music as a tool to attain and maintain health and well-being. So music therapy is not about the music. The music is just the tool that we use. So we do have a lot of experience with music, but we are specialists in um, biology and neurology and emotions and behaviours and sociology and communication and physiology. And so we work as therapists using music as our tool. Um, In 2016, I trained with the Academy of Neurologic Music Therapy so I could further specialise in understanding, I guess I was just really personally interested in the relationship between music and the brain because certainly throughout my life it's felt a lot like music has actually kept me alive. <laughs> yeah. Um, How so? And, well, I am, so from my very first my first words were from a Fats Domino song <laughs> and my earliest memories were just tapes, cassette tapes that my dad had made for me. And I've just always had music in my head and not just, not just like a song that gets stuck there now and then it's like constantly, it's almost like my oxygen. There's always music and rhythm and melody playing in my head and even in my body. So I'm, I, clench my muscle groups and I um I squeeze my toes inside my shoes in rhythms and um I know this I know and now that I'm a music therapist I know why I do that but at the time I thought it was so strange that I was like a musical being not a person yeah so I I had this really um personal desire to explore that more but I also felt that the way I was working as a music therapist, which was very much, and you mentioned it in the bio, it was early childhood intervention. I became more and more disillusioned with that concept. And I became more and more aware that when we intervene in any childhood behavior, we're focusing on the behavior as a problem or an issue, whereas the behavior is always, always the byproduct of what is going on in the brain or the nervous system or the child's body. And um, I, I really had no desire to continue working in a way that tried to adapt, shape, fix or change children's behaviours. So I went to learn about the brain and um, I was absolutely fascinated um, by just the sheer volume of research out there that shows us, like definitively, the relationship between music and the brain is literally off the charts. So more of our brain becomes active when we experience music than when we experience any other thing that research science has ever been able to prove. Wow. Yeah. I love that. It's crazy. Yeah. And I can relate to what you were saying about the anti or move away from motivator to with this intervention because when it comes to our play environments – like, I think a fault with play environments on a whole is that we're prescribing the experience to the child. We're saying, this is how you climb. This is where you yes. climb. This is where you slide. And I've got such a rebellion against that. I was like, let's create the environment for the child to thrive for where they're at at that minute at that time, not yeah. just as me dictating as a designer and um, like nature pedagogue intended person that 
you know, this is your experience and this is how you're going to use it. It drives, and that's yeah. why I love loose parts because it's just go, okay, where are you at today? Do you need to smash that thing? Well, smash it. Yeah. You can smash yeah. it to get an understanding of it. Um, all the better for you because it's yes. respecting and honoring that child in that moment. Yeah. And they're more aware of their moment than we are. So why not give honor that? Ah, absolutely. You know, I had a similar experience to this with my youngest. We're at the playground and he has a lot of energy and he was running up the slide and another kid said, oh, we're only allowed, we're not allowed to go up the slide. We're only allowed to go down. And I thought, oh, you know, they'll sort that out. But then the mother came over and said, um, do you really think you should be going up the slide? <laughs> and uh -huh. I was like, um, yeah, I'm okay with that. Um, the amount of debates I've had doing in-service <laughs> training or at conferences around use of play environments. And now, what about the slide? Are they allowed to go up it? And I'm like, <laughs> okay, this is an hour conversation. Let's go. <laughs> it's crazy. I can't believe that there's, yeah, that, that that's really a thing. Yeah. Um, at the top of my list of questions that I have for you today, it's a question that I think all listeners, no matter what your background can relate to. And I want your insight because it will just give me so much peace in my life. Why sure. do songs get stuck in our head? Oh, okay. So when songs get stuck in our head, it's called an earworm. There are multiple reasons why we get earworms. Um, science has been trying to prove it and science keeps coming back with all these different reasons and, and also science keeps trying to work out how we can get rid of the earworm. However, to have a song stuck in our head is actually a really good regulatory positive experience. It's our, it's our mind frame around how annoying it is that is the problem. So if we could let go of the annoyingness of having a song stuck in our head, um, it's actually very, because it's so repetitive, it's regulatory, it gets us going in a pulse. Um, usually a song that gets stuck in our head, to answer your question, usually a song that gets stuck in our head has a simple melody, like a, um, a jingle from a TV ad or yeah. something like that. It's, been, it's, a, it's a song that's short, snappy, repetitive, simple melody, driving pulse, um, and it always, the melody always resolves the way we think it's going to. So it's, it's not a weird melody that we have to try and work out or analyze. Yeah. And our brain, especially our prefrontal cortex, which is the front part of our brain right behind our eyebrows, um, it loves music like that. So a, a jingle from an ad, a musical jingle is exactly the kind of music that our brain loves the most because it's so simple and it makes so much sense and it's so short so it can be repeated and repeated in our minds um the reason our brain likes to repeat these songs over and over is because it creates a sense of predictability and right. in a world especially in this modern world that is highly unpredictable very rushed very expectation focused and outcome focused um, and sensory overloading and all of these issues that we have in the modern Western world right now, especially in 2020, um, it just, there is so much unknown and there is so much bombardment of information on the brain and the brain can very, very easily go into survival mode. Yep. So it clings to sensory input that will keep it feeling safe. And a very short, um, simple tune that plays over and over and over is one of the absolute best sensory inputs that the brain can use to stay feeling safe and in control. 
So it's our safe and secure reflex is to absorb it on a subconscious level. Your brain goes, okay, let's absorb this and even out. Basically, Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Basically, look, I have to also disclose, I haven't read specific research on this exact cause. Mm. Of, I like on the exact cause of why it happens. So I'm not completely over the science there, but with all of the things I know about music and the brain and how brain reacts to that kind of music. Um, yes, that makes perfect sense. But that's why it does it. Such an interesting thing you mentioned there is that your brain is doing it for a positive for yes. that, for that um, subconscious hug, essentially. But yeah. then it's only our experience and our association of that. We brand it as negative. Yes. And that, how applicable is that across life? I don't, <laughs> I don't know if children brand it as negative. Yeah. I've never true. asked a child. However, I know that adults don't like repetition too much they think it's childish and not creative and you know we listen to a pop song and it's the one sentence um over and over and over and we go oh my gosh what a terrible song because we're judging it and we think we where we would should do better than that we have this higher sense of of um you know what's good and what isn't yeah so we got the superiority thing over music. That's the word I'm looking for. That is the word. So we have a superior superiority complex around having an annoying song stuck in our head. Um, but I don't believe that children potentially have that same mind frame around it. Yeah. And but another interesting thing about this is that um, when I said before how when the more of the brain becomes active all at the same time when we experience music. But the definition here of experiencing music is listening to it, making it, or even thinking about it. Wow. So when we have a song just playing in our mind, more of our brain is lighting up simultaneously and becoming active and communicating and talking and functioning and feeling and responding and doing all the things um, just from thinking about music, having it in our head. Wow. Well, you did that to me after watching YouTube videos, a song about a cell in your body. Every cell in your body yes. is happy. I had that yes. in my head for days. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was actually why I sang the song. I didn't realize how many millions of people would see it. So I've actually had hundreds of emails from people saying that song has never come out of my head since I heard it. <laughs> oh, it's something about it. I was like waking up. Um, like quarter to five the other morning. As soon as I opened my eyes, I was like, oh, there it is. And that's what prompted this question. I was like, why is that? Are you working yeah. some special therapy, Look, um, it's... subconscious subliminal messaging no. to like a song? So what's no. going on there? No, I'm not poisoning everyone with my own perception. On... No, I, um, it's the melody. Yeah. So it's such a, standard well that that actual melody and and I wish this was mentioned more because a lot of people say that it's my song and I try and at every point where I can put this in I try and say it's not my song um the tune so this is this parody has been around for many many years it was released on a cassette tape in the 80s um and I just believed that the fellow who released this song in the 80s wrote the song and I gave him the credit however he doesn't know who wrote the song either it's officially anonymous but the tune that this this song, Every Little Cell, is from is from a very, very old song called um, Short and Bread. And it was a song owned and sung by African-American slaves. Wow. And so I did not 
realise how many millions of people would see this song. And I've been really concerned about the potential triggering of trauma or cultural appropriation here. Um, no one has has contacted me and been upset or said anything, but yeah. I just feel like it's been important to note that that tune is a really significant tune. Yeah. Um, can the like the thought and the emotional association to a song, can that be passed through generationally? Yeah. So trauma and emotions can uh, certainly pass through generationally. The reason that music has such a significant um, correlation with this is that music melody, especially melody, activates the limbic system, which is the part of our brain which is all to do with memory, a long-term memory and emotions. So melody, long-term memory and emotions are all kind of like three best friends who are always hanging around together. And whenever you sort of have one, you have the other ones. So when we hear a tune like that or any, any tune really that's melodic as opposed to being rhythmic like hip hop might be, any song that we experience that is melodic is going to make us feel things and is also going to trigger our long-term memories. So, which is why when I worked in dementia care, music is such a great tool for um, reminiscing with people who have dementia or even being able to sing once they've um, lost that, the capability to talk. Wow. Um, that yeah. kind of ticks my, one of my questions here is like, why does music take us back so vividly? Yeah, that's why. It's it's the best way to create long-term memories. In fact, a lot of people use music as a um, mnemonic, which is an, um, a learning tool. So musical mnemonics, are a really good example is like the alphabet song. Yep. So there is, there is no way in the world that three-year-olds would know 26 random pieces of information in the correct order if it wasn't for the song. Yep. Um, and because we learn it to the song, we remember it forever. So... I will be working with someone with dementia and they'll have forgotten everything, but they'll still be able to sing the alphabet song because it's, it's stored there yeah. in long-term memory. Yeah. yeah. I remember being in like year four and thinking, I wish I could just learn school stuff in a song because I can remember lyrics to all these songs, but I have challenges uh -huh. remembering stuff for class. And even at yeah. a young age, I was like, if it was just in a song, I'd nail it. <laughs> Yes. Well, I mean, this was one of the first things I learned at, with the Academy of Neurologic Music Therapy. The guy said, first thing he said was, by rights, all education should be sung. Wow. And it makes sense to me because I never understood schoolwork very well. I understood a lot. I mean, I've always been confused about how I could be so smart, but also be so dumb is what I called it in my own mind about myself. Um, and when I was 15, my school came to my parents and said, we think Ali's got a learning disorder. And, um, because they were still cutting up oranges and going, see two halves. And I was like, I don't get it. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I, I knew my twos and fives and tens and that's probably it. Maybe my 11s cause they've got a pattern going, but, um, I, I couldn't learn anything until my parents put it all to music and taught me songs and I learned my times tables to songs and I learned everything. They came up with new patterns and new ways of helping me understand the information. I can definitely relate 
to that in my schooling experience. Um, being diagnosed with ADD in year four um, yep. was just like, and I just was always felt in my heart that I was like, I don't have a learning difficulty. You've got a teaching difficulty. I just don't like what you're doing. Yes. <laughs> and um, the teacher, yep. like, he rocks on his chair and looks out the window all the time. I said, yeah, because you're just writing on a board and it's dull. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's why the I... work you do is so important. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, I, one of, I, I'm kind of lucky. I'm, I'm lucky because we have learned so much about the brain in, in the last 15 years. So anyone who's come before me hasn't had the, the benefit of science to back up what they're saying. Um, yeah. And because of that, because we didn't even know when I studied my master of music therapy, I, we were still being taught then 15 years ago that the brain stopped developing at 25 years of age and we really didn't understand neuroplasticity um we just didn't realize how the brain worked we didn't understand anything about sensory integration until the 70s so um the information is quite new which is why we are so firmly steeped in a behavioral paradigm it's why our parents and our teachers focused on our behaviors and our grandparents focused on our parents behaviors and all throughout the generations previous it's been all about managing our behaviours um, and doing that through discipline and rewards. And we know now, because we understand neuroscience, that that is absolutely not the way to go. Um, but we are the first generation of parents really pushing outside that mould, and that's a really difficult thing to do. Um, was that the motivation um, behind brain equals behaviour? So... Brain equal behaviours, well, I guess the way that all started was in 2016 when I studied with the Academy of Neurologic Music Therapy and I pulled away from um, early childhood intervention, it was mostly, I'd say, because my own daughter was being assessed for autism. My own daughter was having a lot of really big, long, very serious uh meltdowns and um, high, high anxiety and a lot of other stuff going on. And um, I did not want, I could recognize in her that she just needed support and I needed to work out what was going on for her in her nervous system and in her, in her body that I could support to regulate. And I knew that it wasn't about me teaching her not to have, how to have, not to have meltdowns. Um, so that was the underlying change, I guess. And then I struggled at the same time as my daughter was um, being assessed. Well, let's face it, kids, we were on a waiting list for 18 months before I even got to see anyone for an appointment. So I did all my own research. Um, and as I was researching autism, because I'd already self-identified on her behalf that it would it would be autism when we finally got our assessment, Um as I was doing that, I was sort of looking at all these criteria list of, you know, what we know about autism now as opposed to what we used to think we know about it. And I was looking down the list and I was just ticking all the boxes and going, oh, that's me. That's me. Tick, tick, tick. Um, and so I, over a period of, the, of all the, the bits and pieces falling together, I realised, um, well, I self-identified as autistic as well and went on to have a diagnosis 
funnily enough, adults don't go on waiting lists. So my my diagnosis came very quickly. Isn't that interesting? Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, but through all of this time, I was I was um I was gathering all this information. I was collating it with my own lived experience, which um I'd always wondered, like, why do I do this? Why is this happening? Why am I so different? What's going on? Why can't why am I always making music in my head so that I can look at someone in the eye? And why am I doing this? And so I put my lived experience plus what the science and research was saying, and I combined that with my experience as a therapist. And I, I was really struggling at this time. Like I was, I would say I was 2016 was my rock bottom. I was, I was really not functioning well. I was nonverbal. Um, I was not able to complete tasks like I could read research um but I could like I could read theses and I was downloading all this research and I was in this really highly academic space but I couldn't make a cup of tea um I couldn't drive and remember which way to turn at intersections that I go on every day and so I was really struggling and I thought if I am really struggling being autistic and going through this stage with my daughter and knowing that I don't want her um, to have behavioural-based therapies. And if I'm really struggling and I'm a therapist who understands yeah. all of this, imagine what it's like for all the people in the world who are on a waiting list, who haven't had an appointment with a paediatrician or anyone yet, who have no idea what to do next. So I put all of my ideas together and created the brain zika behaviors, um, which at that point was a two day workshop. It's now a 10 week e-course. That's amazing. And people can find that alisondavies.com.au. Yes. And I'll put all the, I'll put the notes in, in the show notes as well. Um, I like what you said there about, you know, what we think we know and what we actually know, like mm. previously our perception of what, what we, our understanding of, um, autism in the past and where we've got to now. What have, what are the big shifts you've seen happen in the perception around autism in the recent years? Um, well, I mean, it's still slower than what ideally we'd like. Um, the perception has really changed in the lives of families um, with autistic children or who are autistic parents who are autistic themselves. The perception has not changed quickly nearly enough um, within actual uh, medical service providers like doctors. And um, so we know that autism is a neurotype, not a disorder. Uh, we know that autism is about, so it's a neurotype, which means it, it's a descriptive word that describes how your brain works. And usually with autism, people are either sort of hyper-connected or hypo-connected. So it, certain connections in the brain are just really on overdrive and are really fast and are really strong. Um, and then some are slower than the average or typical person, I guess you could say. Um, and, but we're born like that. It's not a disorder and it's not a behavioral problem. It's not a childhood thing. If you're an autistic child, you will 100% absolutely also be an autistic adult and an autistic old person. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we also know that it is not just a boy thing. Um, it was a very strong belief 
that autism was mostly um, a boy thing. And it was also characterised by very obvious behavioural traits like rocking and screaming and um, being nonverbal and having a fixation on, you know, lining up trains um, and not making eye contact and all of that. We know now that that is one, I guess you could call, say, profile of how autism um, might express, um, be expressed in someone's life. But the idea of the spectrum, which isn't a great, I mean, I don't love the idea of the spectrum myself, but it does show us that there are lots and lots of different ways of being autistic um, and you can't see it from the outside all the time. Yep. Um and when it comes to the rate of diagnosis, is that something we're seeing increasing dramatically? We are, but I don't think that's because more people are autistic. Um, I think people, a lot of people confuse that when you hear the, when you hear this conversation happening, a lot of people confuse this with thinking that more and more people are autistic than ever before. I think we understand it more now so we can identify autism yeah in people um also um there's been autistic people all through all the generations that were just went through life being having their neurotype unidentified and they um developed addictions and often um died a lot earlier because from mental health um illness and um, alcoholism and other um, conditions that they developed because of the trauma and because their needs weren't being supported throughout their life. Yep. Yep. So this is a real big deal. Um, before now, and hopefully it stops here, autistic people's lives have been absolutely significantly shorter than non-autistic people's lives. Um, but hopefully now that we can identify autism so much more easily, we can support children and well, people from whenever they receive their identity or their diagnosis yep. and be able to sh- um, support them to self-regulate so that their life can be just as fulfilling and, and as long as anyone else. Yeah. There's one, But there's one more point I want to make. Um, so autism, there's nothing – it's not a bad thing. It's not pathological. However, the world that we live in is less conducive for any brain to cope with. let alone a brain that is neurodivergent, that is already predominantly living in survival mode, that is already not really designed for this world we live in. The sensory denseness in our environment now is off the charts. The information that comes to the brain is off the charts. The pace at which we live is ridiculous. None of that is conducive to anyone's brain working at its best. However, it is far, 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 more difficult for children now to sit on a chair at the dinner table or to sit on a chair in the classroom or to be able to participate in ways that we were participating in when we were children and it's not a reflection of the children it's not a reflection of kids these days or behaviors or parents just not parenting right like you know just bring back discipline it's none of that it's a direct reflection of the um the environment that we live in and the expectations placed upon us and our kids I love that understanding. Thank you so much. Um, isn't it interesting how like our understanding of the brain has rocketed in the last few years and just our understanding of um, 
the neurotypes is, and the diagnosis and the support around helping yeah. these communities is so, so much better. Oh, it's just, I really hope for our children who are neurodivergent. Um, and, and one of the things we, we also know because science shows us now is that neurodivergence is genetic. So um, usually if we, um, if our children are neurodivergent, um, then likely that one or both of the parents are as well or vice versa. Um, with, if, you know, a parent has a neurodivergence like ADHD or autism or um, uh, dyslexia or whatever it might be, um, then it's, it's often um, genetically, you know, just passed through generations. And so you'll find, for example, with an autistic family or if you have an autistic child, in your family you'll start to see patterns throughout you or your partner and through their family and the grandparents and the aunties and uncles and you'll start to see that you've all lived this culture this neurodivergent culture as your normal hmm. all through the generations um and it it is your normal and it's a wonderful culture to have and it's just about understanding how to support individual needs that's the only thing we really need to focus on is supporting individual needs yeah and i think that i'm just observing in the last years the stigma around even talking about um neurodivergence and well let's spectrum children on the spectrum like i used to hear it all the time um mm -hmm. that stigma's improved quite dramatically as well in my observation would you agree disagree I would agree with that. Um, I would agree with that. I think there are, I think words are very, very important. And I think there are still a few words that we use which perpetuate um, old fashioned perceptions. For example, people say they talk about labels and they, I think that the, the word label often gets used in one of two ways. It's either used as a substitute word for diagnosis yeah. Um, but it's also used as a word for discrimination. And when people say, I don't want my child to be labelled or uh, a, there is a lot of fear, there is a lot of fear and rightly so because when we were children, our neurotype, if we were neurodivergent, like if we had ADHD or if we were autistic, that was not celebrated. That was not celebrated no. in the classroom. That was not celebrated at home. We were treated as naughty kids um, or problem kids. Um. <clears throat> However, so it makes sense that we have fear around our children um, going down the path of assessment or being what we call labelled. But when we use the word label, we sort of mean it in, in the sense of we don't want our children to be discriminated. And discrimination still does occur yeah. um, because, but not less and less from individual people. So I find that it's, it's less about teachers discriminating or other parents discriminating or other kids discriminating but more about the systems like the education system or the systems that allow for our children to that our children have to exist within yeah. they are discriminatory against supporting needs so i do feel like the stigma or the fear is less yeah but it's still there um, and it's a real, it's a systemic problem more than an individual perception yep. problem. Yeah, I can relate to that. Like being diagnosed with ADD back in the day and it's like, here, you're going to be on dexafetamine and 
all of this sorts. And I was just, I, I would take the tablets in high school and then go spit them out because I was like anti it. Um, and it was like this, no, I'm not conforming to what you think I am because I'm not what you think I am. I'm not yeah. this, I don't operate from this corridor and that's only me. So yeah. I'll show you, I'm not going to do what <laughs> yeah. you want. Um, and I'm going to move in the opposite direction of that. So <laughs> You're um, sounding a bit demand avoidant there. Demand which... avoidant, what's that? So demand avoidance is something that a lot of people experience and we don't choose to be demand avoidant, but our brain will absolutely hands down refuse for us to do things that other people are expecting us to. And it's a way of maintaining control. So we do it to, um, to manage anxiety. Um, we do it as a way of... Um, mainly man, man, managing anxiety or staying out of survival mode. So our brain will say, they want me to do that or they're expecting me to do that. I'm not going to do that. And then the brain is like, I'm still in control. I win. And when yes. a brain feels in control, it is not experiencing anxiety. So this is a really important key factor. When the brain is, feels in control, it is not in survival mode. There you go. So whatever we can do to maintain our sense of control, and this is what teenagers do really well, is just, um, and we call it defiance. We take it back to a behavioural thing, but it's not. It's um, doing what they need to do to maintain a sense of control so that they can experience the highest levels of regulation they can and they can feel safe. It's really common. That is an insight for our listeners into my life right there because um, <laughs> that's how I operate. <laughs> um, yep. I would, as a teenager, I remember vividly saying the best way to not get me to do something is demand me to do it. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. That's hilarious. And I'm a bit the same. And, but also, you know, we can have, um, we can have exceptions to the rules like specific people um, it's okay with yep. or like if it's a very safe person or a very safe connected relationship in our life or if we are highly motivated, if we are super motivated to do the thing that's being asked of us, for example, when you asked me to do this interview, I'm super motivated to do it because I love talking about this. I could do it all day. Whereas if someone emailed me and asked me to do something else, I'd be more like, oh, sorry, I've got a lot on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, because I need to maintain a sense of control as well. Yeah, that's a demand avoidance equals control. Yeah. That's amazing. And, and it's also, it's, also um, it's centered around our personal motivation, which is why um, we, we say that autistic children, for example, have special interests. Yeah. Um, I don't love the word special interest. Um, I kind of think that they are... Um, experts in whatever it is that they love. Um, however, they are highly motivated, but they might engage in this one thing and engage in nothing else, but it's because they are so motivated with this one particular thing that they love and they are so highly interested in that they can perform on huge levels and they can know every bit of information there is to know about it. They're an expert in this area yeah. and it's all because of their own personal motivation. Yeah, and that uh, goes into all that research around um, the refuge of, of mastery. If I'm, yes. if I'm good at this one thing, I can understand the world a lot better because I've always got this 
island to go back yeah. to. It's safe. I understand yeah. every single part of it and everything's okay in this world. Yeah. Yeah. Is that right? That's yep. my understanding of it. Exactly. Um, and you're the pro. Um, I love the framing from um, Tom Hartman. Um, he's got a book called ADHD, A Hunter in a Farmer's World. So he's uh-huh. saying children or people diagnosed with, once again, it's not the ADD, isn't it a dis- disorder? Um, it's just the way it's um, genetic as it comes through. And the people with this more hyper alertness would tend to be a hunter back in yeah. generations ago. So they're hyper alert and they tend to chase and want to eat the things that are going to eat them. And then, but it's just a part of their functioning. They need to be high alert. Those little details are going to grab their attention. And the only disconnect in that is what makes this negative connotation around the hunter is that we're operating from a farmer's world now. We've had this big shift and we're happy to sit and watch things instead of get out there. Yes. I just love that analogy. I haven't heard it before and that's spot on. It is so spot on. And it's, it's the hunters that are going to change the world and save the world yep. and come up with the solutions to make things easier for the farmers. Yeah, absolutely. And um, he said, listen, like one's not right, one's not wrong. But yes. the hunter is going to get out there, take the risks, be the entrepreneur, think outside the box and go after things that are challenging. And the farmer is going to make sure your bookkeeping is perfect. Yeah. It's a, it's a team. It's a team. Exactly. Yeah. And it's a really good, it's a really beautiful analogy for inclusivity because one of the things I love about classrooms now is there are all the different neurotypes in the one classroom. And I think it's such a blessing for neurodivergent children to have, for want of a better word, because I I think these terms are quite othering in themselves. So I don't love the, the word neurotypical, which refers to people who aren't neurodivergent. However, um, you know, for want of a better word, let's just use those for the moment. I love the idea that there's children of all varying neurotypes in the one classroom and they can learn from each other and have such deep insight into humanity. And I think of it a little bit like um, an ice cream shop. So if all of the world was neurotypical, that's kind of like if there was only vanilla ice cream, like if the person who invented ice cream made vanilla and then just stopped and it, that was that. I mean, there's nothing wrong with vanilla ice cream, so it'd be fine, but we would not know what we were missing because we can step into an ice cream shop now and there's 50 different flavours and it's just an absolute um, wonderland and that's what we want, uh, the diversity of flavours and um, it's such a blessing now to be able to recognise these within people as a positive wonderful part of their identity and who they are as opposed to um, a pathological problem that needs to be sorted so they can be more like the vanilla ice creams. Yeah. And for it's, it ties back into moving away from those labels. If you've only got that one, one label, um, that's, that's where you're going to be defined in your little lane. Yes. um, As neurotypical as well. And yeah. I love the progression you're seeing in innovative schools with these different groups and all that diversity yeah. more and more opposed to the right on the blackboard and then be like, that's showing my age, we have blackboards. Um, yeah. And then the reflex of that is, oh, well, this child's not a good learner. Exactly. And this is why I love 
the development of playgrounds because we know hands down absolutely that our sensory systems are not developing the way they used to and the way they should because we are having less access to being outside and less access to risky things like our sensory systems develop much better when we hang upside down and spin and swing and do the dangerous stuff um and so we require multiple sensory breaks throughout the day now more than just recess and lunch and we need we need um our children need access to playgrounds that allow them to 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 move and climb and do whatever they feel yeah drawn to do in there rather than have a playground that is prescribed like this is the course or this is what you have to do here and they have it for three years from toddler to five have fun with that um i'm just thinking we we support like i want to create environments that offer um that sensory saturation so um to rewind when i'm designing a play environment I yep. want multi-sensory opportunity. Yes. And so the child can, when they're being stimulated, if they're climbing high and there's a bit of risk involved, that demands their full attention. Therefore, they're not worrying about the noise. They're not worrying about these other yes. things. So we're teaching the body how to have that sensory fusion to yes. focus on what they're doing and block out the rest. Um, now, yes. if I'm focusing on environments that offer lots of sensory input, and then the children are going out into like the world or getting home and they're having more sensory input. Yeah. Is it a correct strategy to give them lots of sensory yeah. input in a play environment okay. so they can manage better or not? I would say yes, especially if the playground is outside. Yeah. Not necessarily if the playground is indoors because our brain has been integrating sensory information from the natural environment since the very beginning of humans with brains. Yeah. Um, and it feels very safe. It can it can integrate. So I think of sensory integration a bit like um, an email inbox. So um, everything you see, hear, feel, touch, taste, whatever, all of the sensory information comes to your brain just like an email would come to an inbox. And then you have to go through your entire inbox and open every email, work out what it says, and then work out how to action it. And mostly we just delete them because they're not important you know, it's really important to action the important ones. This is what our brain does with sensory information. But our brain has been doing that with sensory information of the natural environment since the beginning of time. And it understands it really well. It knows how to action it. It knows how to respond. It knows that it's safe. It can really easily predict when it isn't safe. So if we um, see a shark or if we smell smoke or if we know that our environment is not safe because of the wind or the waves or whatever it might be, our brain knows exactly what to do straight away. But when we are utilising any equipment or environment or anything that has been produced post-industrial revolution, like anything that's made from plastic or synthetic or lights or flashy things or makes noise or anything like that, all of that sensory information is basically new. When we're looking at the scale of how long long brains have been around, that stuff is post-industrial revolution. It's a couple of hundred years old at the max. Yeah. Uh, that's not even counting technology, which is like 10 years old, five years old, 20 years old. 
Um, so our brain has never had to make sense of that stuff before. Yep. And it has not had the capacity to evolve to the point where it can easily and quickly and safely make sense of artificial um, or synthetic sensory information, which is why basically if you're outdoors, the world is going to be their oyster and their brain is going to be functioning at its best unless they have a specific trauma associated with an outdoor event or, you know, there's obviously yep. going to be reasons why some children will have specific reasons why there might be um, difficulties for them. But on the whole, outdoors, um, any anything goes. Awesome. And as our listeners was, would know that I go on so much about creating real experiences. You know, the stick is real. The dirt is real. You don't need to yep. go inside to grab an iPad to explain it. Explain it in the dirt. Explain it with a leaf. And then mm -hmm. I frame it as, is it real? Because underneath real is our replica. So we've got our real climbing the tree. Our replica is our fort and post and platform. And then mm. underneath that is our... Um, the simulation of an experience, which is the technology, like a screen. So keep it real, get past the replica, and then we don't need to go into yeah. the simulations of these experiences because they, yep. ma they make it real. That's where they're learning. That's where they can absorb this information and make yes. it tangible because you can't otherwise. And then we're expecting them to learn on these intangible experiences like yeah. care for the environment where is it it's everywhere what's in it everything yeah. and but they've never touched it felt it tasted it smelt yes. it and then yes. we're like why don't you know about this stuff like, yeah keep exactly it. and also when we're learning indoors and learning on ipads and and whatnot so there's nothing inherently wrong with an ipad or inherently wrong with being indoors in itself yeah. but but when you look at this as that as the environment that we are trying to thrive within it it's our vessel like the environment that we are in is our vessel in which we can live or thrive yep. or not thrive or not cope so when that vessel um is something that our brain has not had um a lot of experience with our brain is less likely to feel safe and it always comes back to this for me a brain that does not feel safe is a brain in survival mode if yep. the brain feels safe we are not experiencing anxiety. We are experiencing regulation. That's really interesting in the context of like, go back to what we said at the start of the podcast about the association to the experience of that song being repetitive and the association yeah. of the environment. I've seen it time and time again. The child feels safe and secure outdoors. They yes. are stimulated. They're like calm. And then all of a sudden the association is dominated by a parent coming in and saying, be careful, don't do yes. that, look out. And all of a sudden, yep. no safe and secure, fight or flight, yeah. all of those and things. And it comes down to association when the experience yes. is exactly the same. And the interesting thing here from my perspective is feeling safe isn't actually about, they can be swinging upside down from a tree and not sure if they're going to fall or not. But that, that perception is of safe is completely different to a brain that is not coping and not feeling safe within the nervous system. They're completely different things. Can you um, unpack that a bit for us? Yeah. Physical so, safety, brain safety, I think. Yeah, this is that's basically how it looks for me. So children can be doing something that's a bit risky or they're not sure if they can do it. Like, for example, hanging out of a tree. They're not really sure what's going to happen. 
that kind of physical safety where they might break their leg doesn't make necessarily make them feel unsafe. However, if they were in a room with a whole bunch of flashing lights or phone noises or things that their brain has to try and um, integrate, make sense of process and action and tell us how to respond to it, the brain's more likely to be going, hang on, what are all these beeping noises? Like, is one of them mine? Do I, do I have a notification? Should I be checking? Like, or has someone walked into the room? What's going on? Um, and so our brain does not feel like it is in control. Right. So it, what I'm saying is, as far as our brain and our regulation and our anxiety goes, um, having an actual physical risk, like um, potentially falling out a tree, doesn't affect our brain in the same way as being in an environment that it can't cope with. Yeah, which would tend to be overstimulating and really yeah. like with yeah. m huge uh, sensory input. Exactly. Right. So when it comes to those children in your world that um, have a certain neurotype or neurodivergent, as you refer to it, um, yeah. how can we as caretakers, caregivers, um, what's our steps to support those children? Well... First, I know it's a very broad question because you've got a whole very range, but where do we start? Look, I think it's really important to understand our neurotype. And a lot of people are hesitant to do that because right now at this point in history, it involves assessments and diagnosis. And the assessments and the diagnosis are based on old-fashioned knowledge, the DSM-5, which is the statistics manual, um, the diagnostic manual that um, tells us our, you know, gives us our diagnosis. Um, it's it's a terrible resource and it's out of date and it it doesn't cater for um, many many people. Um, it only caters for specific subtypes of um, neurodivergence. However, that is where we're at at this point. Hopefully, uh, we will find a better way of assessing and diagnosing autism and ADHD and whatnot. Um, however, I really do feel that understanding our children's neurotype and our own neurotype is so important because we learn so much about our individual needs by understanding them you know it's kind of like if we didn't know whether we whether we were left or right-handed we wouldn't necessarily know what pen to use or how what we needed like if we didn't understand our um you know, if our child was gay or if we were gay, we would want to know that because it would inform everything about who we are in the world and how to, you know, live our best life. Um, so not, not seeking clarity around our neurotype means that we potentially miss out on a whole world of information, of support, of um, following or getting to know or meeting mentors with your same neurotype who you can learn from their lived experience from. Um, and, and I think just having that deep insight around who we are, for example, my daughter is autistic and she received her diagnosis when she was five. And I was absolutely adamant that she would receive her diagnosis because we, we would be able to celebrate it and she would own it, totally own it and be an autistic woman 
and an autistic girl who knows who she is and understands her needs and who I could then, um, you know, she could develop real deep awareness and insight around what she needs to feel safe in the world and, and be able to advocate for herself um, from a young age. And um, that, you know, and that doesn't mean that there's no right or wrong. That doesn't mean everybody else has to do that. But from my own experience and, and you know, getting my own autism diagnosis changed my life. I honestly, I've got to say the day I understood that I was autistic was better than my wedding day. It was like the best day of my life. My entire world, everything across my entire life that had been so confusing to me all of a sudden made complete sense and I also was able in that very moment to shed all of these horrible things I'd said about myself like um, I used to say in my head all the time Ali how can you be so smart but so dumb it was a really common thing that I said to myself throughout my whole life and all of a sudden it made sense and that that thing never comes to my head anymore I only ever tell it when I'm telling this story um, so understanding who we are, um, at our core is just such a incredible way to support our needs. Liberation comes yeah. to mind. You liberated so yourself. Empowering. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, when I was at school, I would tell myself if I could only channel it into the things channel my brain into the things that matter and not useless information, I'd be much better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And now that makes me that makes me who I am in the way I think and the way I move and yeah. the way I structure my staff to support me. Um, yeah. And I was the one that was really reluctant of labels. I didn't want to yeah. adhere to it. I didn't want to identify as it because I was always telling myself, well, if I identify that, that's me and people are going to think of me in a certain way. Instead of yeah. flipping it, and this is where your story and your openness about it is so inspirational to my own story. It's that you've done it in such a way to liberate instead of be defined by. Yeah. So thank you yeah. so much for that learning for me in my, my life and how I move forward and yeah. how I support my family better. Thank you. Yeah. It, it, and, but that only, and that only happened because I was at my absolute rock bottom with life. Um, and I had no, I had all of these thoughts in my head and I knew that I needed help and I needed, um, you know, one day I tried to call lifeline. <laughs> That's how bad yeah. that moment was. And I couldn't think of the phone number and I used to be a lifeline telephone counselor so, <laughs> and I couldn't think of the number and I was so not functioning that I had to find a way to get these thoughts and these things out of my head and to find help and to receive the support that I needed. Um, so it sort of came out of um, a life or death type situation, I'd, I'd say. Yeah. But then me sharing my story and my information also was part of my healing because I have, um, you might relate to this as well um, with ADD. Uh, I have so many thoughts in my head they are so fast um I would not if someone saw me they would not go oh she has ADHD um uh, that's because most of us think it's a behavioral thing yeah. <laughs> um but in my mind I have a million thoughts going at once and um 
they were too fast and they were too much and I had to get them out. So sharing my story was the only way I could really um, support myself. So it came, it, it came about because I needed to do it for my own care. However, I can absolutely see how that has given other people permission to explore yeah. and express their own um, lived experiences as well. And finally, for those people listening that be like, can relate to these stories and do want to take the next step in finding that help and metaphorically can't find the number, remember the number to lifeline, yeah. what, what's your recommendation on those steps they can take? Look, I, I really think there's a lot of value in finding people with lived, the lived experience that you're having. Uh, this is one of the benefits of social media and all of these platforms is that there are people out there talking about their experiences and advocating and sharing information that you just don't receive in a textbook or you won't get from your kid's teacher or you won't get from the doctor that you're going to for a referral or you won't get from your psychologist necessarily. Um, but I also think that it's really important to find the right healthcare professional for you and I've had some really horrible experiences with uh, one psychologist in particular and um, GPs and doctors when I've gone to um, ask for referrals or to talk about what's going on for me um, it's very clear that they don't understand autism I've been told many things like I couldn't possibly be autistic because I'm married and I've got a job and I make eye contact and um <laughs> You know, you, you can't be one way at school and one way at home. That's not ADHD. And um, also there's a lot of ableism. You can go to a therapist and tell really vulnerable information about what's going on and they say things like, oh, well, if you just did this, you'd be able to do this. Or if you just reframed it like this. Yeah. Um, and that can be quite traumatic. So finding service providers that fit for you is really important and this comes at the risk of um leaving one therapist or one person and finding the next and finding the next and finding the next and the risk here then is that people might say that you're doctor shopping mm. which is a horrible um a horrible thing to say but um there is this perception out there in the world that parents who are seeking multiple doctors opinions and multiple people until they find someone who can assess them and diagnose them with their their need um that they're actually doctor shopping um and so it's a really difficult process once you start going down this path you come up with a whole lot of old-fashioned resistance and really discriminatory um perceptions and all i can say is just keep looking for the right people awesome you're the right people and that's why people can go to your website, check out the Brain Equals Behaviour 10-week course. Um, also, I'd recommend going over and looking at your YouTube. Yep. Facebook is music. Can you share that with me? I can't Alison. read my own writing because I wrote it down uh, earlier. Alison Davies, Music and the Brain. Excellent. And Instagram Yes, which is at alisondavies.com.au, which is also my website address. Excellent. And we'll put all of those notes in the show notes. Um, in addition to that, I'll put the link to that Tom Hartman, um, A Hunter in a Farmer's World book as well, because I think that 
is a great place to start. And it's a really good shift in the framing of it. Um, yeah, on I'd this really topic. like to read that myself. Um, also, I'd love to have you back on again. We got so much to talk about. We're out of time for today, but however, I think we've just scratched the surface. I've got a whole list of questions I still want to ask. Um, <laughs> but I just want to say thank you so much for, once again, your vulnerability, your experience, your passion, and your depth of wisdom around this subject is just so empowering for me. And I know the listeners um, are going to get so much out of this conversation as well. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for allowing me to talk about my special interest. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'd be totally happy to come back. We'll have it. We'll book it. Thank Great. you so much, Alison. Bye. Chat soon. Bye. That was the amazing and inspiring Alison Davies all the way from Tasmania. As always, all the notes are in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today on Play It Forward.